Hello to everyone watching at home. Uh, you should know it's, it's pretty full in here, which is good. It's good to see everybody, everybody's faces, even though you're all covered with masks. <laughs> I can see you're smiling, which is, which is good. Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are very thankful that it has been granted to us by our grace to know you to know you as Lord and Savior, to know you as Father, to know the role of your Holy Spirit as Comforter and Paraclete, the one who guides us into all truth and who leads us into all truth for your sake and for our growth and knowledge in Christ. We thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy through our faith in Jesus Christ and for your presence now among us as we gather in your name to worship you. And I pray for those who are gathered here, for those who are watching online, that your spirit, Lord, would unite our hearts in a single pursuit, and that is to make much of you, to glorify you, to seek you so as to find our deepest and most lasting satisfaction in Jesus Christ, so that you may be glorified in all that we do. Father, open now to us your scriptures that we would learn of them, Open our heart and mind to learn, and then, O oh Lord God, to understand and to apply what we have learned, that we might, in demonstrating Christ to those who know you as well as to those who don't, that there is a God who is great and good and loving and just and kind and merciful and gracious, and that we are privileged to share this wonderful news with one another and with those who have yet to make that, to, yet to have made your acquaintance and to know you as a Savior, Lord, Redeemer, Savior, friend. Lord, speak to us now, we ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do a bit of review this week before we actually launch fully into a discussion of chapter 2 in 1 John, and you'll find out in, in just a moment why. So I just want to pick up where we left off last week, which was in verse 5 of chapter 1 and read through verse 6 of chapter 2. But as I said, we're going to focus on some review in terms of some important things that John has already emphasized, which will help us understand the rest of the letter. So he writes in verse 5 of chapter 1, This is a message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. <clears throat> but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. <clears throat> My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now by way of review, I'm going to connect this to plans that we have here at Maranatha. And as many of you know, that we are preparing for a relaunch of the community group ministry. And in preparation for that, Pastor John has been leading the the CG leaders in discussions and readings of several books which are helpful and informative, uh, addressing such topics related to uh, the life, the health, and the ministry of the church. And these books are, uh, so far we've read Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Discipleship by Mark Dever, Church Membership by Jonathan Lehman, and uh, the last one that we read is What is a Healthy Church Member by Thabiti Anyabwile. And uh, in the second chapter of Anyabwile's book, the, the title of that chapter is A Healthy Church Member is a Biblical Theologian, which sounds a bit intimidating as a title, I'll grant you. The chapter, however, begins with this quote from J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, in which Packer writes that the conviction behind this book, he says, is that ignorance of God lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. He wrote that in 1973. I remember reading this as a college student and had no idea what that meant because I was just newly saved. But that problem is a persistent one. And picking up on Packer's analysis, Anya Bule writes this in his chapter. He says, every Christian is meant to be a theologian in the best and most intimate sense of the word. If churches are to prosper in health, church members must be committed to being biblical theologians in whatever capacity they can. So when you think about it, it sounds like, again, like an intimidating thing, a biblical theologian. Do I have to go to you know, seminary and things like that? Well, it would help, but you don't have to. Because when you think about it, if I explain it to you this way, and this is the way Anya Buile explains it as well, that being a biblical theologian is a lot like putting together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. That, you know, assuming you have all of the pieces to the puzzle, you begin assembling those pieces according to pattern, shape, where they fit in the particular frame of the, of the puzzle, and you begin to associate and pick up particular themes of those pieces, and you eventually, if you've done it right, you have a, a puzzle that looks like the picture on the box. Well, in the same way, being, doing biblical theology is like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You begin to trace what are the main themes, what are the main foci of the particular books of the Bible that you're reading? And then you see how all of these themes fit together to tell a unified story. So that the Bible just isn't one sort of, ind- you know, a string of independent stories, each telling a different uh, particular viewpoint, but they all work toward uh, directing us to an understanding of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, that all of the scriptures really are about him. You think of Jesus' encounter with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. And they are, these two disciples are in despair. They are despondent because they are convinced they were that Jesus was everyone that they had hoped he would be. And then, you know, now he's been dead these three days and all of that. And Jesus says, oh, slow of heart, you know, foolish. 
Don't you understand that these things had to happen? And then Luke says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he opened their minds to all of the scriptures pertaining to himself. So all of the scriptures, if we put those themes together, will lead us to a deeper understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he's done. To that end, the letter of 1 John is an excellent place to learn how to do biblical theology. Um, I remember in seminary we were told, and it proved out to be true, that if you were learning uh, how to do New Testament Greek, how to translate, you started in 1 John because the Greek was very simple you know, to us new students. And the same thing I think is true for doing biblical theology. Theology that emerges from the Bible, that emerges from the Scripture, it's a good training ground to learn to see how John weaves particular themes and doctrines that are essential to our faith in even the first chapter of his letter. He's already introduced us to several important doctrines in the, the first chapter of his letter without even identifying them as saying, like, this is this doctrine, this is this doctrine. And we're going to have a lot of slides going up on the, on the board here in just a moment. But the first doctrine that John introduces us to is the same one that he introduces uh, to us uh, in his gospel, which is the incarnation. We, right there in, in verse 2, he says, you know, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, which was revealed to us. And so from the start, John wants us to know that Jesus is in fact as he says in his gospel, the word was God, the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and we have seen his glory. And I, I kind of know what you may be thinking. is like, Pastor Mike, we, we've been through this. We've, we get it. We understand you know, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why, why go over it again? Well, because it's at the heart of the gospel, number one, to have a, a complete understanding of, of who Jesus is as fully God and fully man pertains to how we understand the nature of salvation. That, that as fully God, Jesus is able to fully bear the wrath of God against him for our iniquity. And then as fully man who lives a perfect life, he is able to be that perfect sacrifice for sin because he lived a sinless life. And if you begin to separate the two, you begin to, you have a false gospel, you have a false Christ. And there are many in our culture even today who would do that, who would who would and have consciously separated the, the historical Jesus from the Christ. And they have reduced Jesus to this very well-intentioned person who was you know, fighting against injustice and uh, all sorts of inequality, and he was crushed by the machinery of the world. But in doing that, he released into the world this Christ consciousness that if we could just tap into that, everything would be fine. And you begin to think, wait a minute, that's not what Jesus is about. And so the incarnation grounds us in an understanding of the nature and character of, of Christ's mission and then our mission as well. So a fundamental understanding of the incarnation, looking at John 1, the gospel, and then looking at 1 John 1, he introduces this as elementary to where we begin our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. Then he moves into a discussion of the church. In verse 3, he talks about the fact that we have that which they have seen and that which they have heard. They've heard Jesus. They've heard the gospel. They proclaim also to his congregation and to others. Why? He says, so that we may have fellowship with you. You may have fellowship with us. 
And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. So we see that the church is this community of people, all of whom are gathered together, and they are founded on the, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, united together by their common experience of the fact that they're all sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. So that becomes a starting point. And that God is doing this amazing thing by bringing people from various backgrounds, various levels of the, of the economy and society, different um, you know, levels of intelligence, different levels of income, you know, male and female, children, bringing them into this community in order to build them up into a holy dwelling in which the Spirit of God resides. And there are scriptures that point out this as well. Paul picks up on this in his letter to the Ephesians. He writes in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, the Ephesians are Gentiles, they're non-Jews who have come to believe in Christ, and they have begun to experience a bit of uh, resentment from their, their Jewish brethren who have also come to know Christ. And there's a bit of tension that Paul is trying to resolve in that letter, sort of easing that if you will, that racial tension that exists between Jews and non-Jews. And so he is encouraging his Gentile brethren that you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer outside the, the covenant, but now, he says, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so Peter builds on this as well in his letter. In the first, uh, second chapter of 1 Peter, again, Peter writing to Jews now who have been spread out. They've been dispersed because of persecution. Wondering, you know, if we're far from Jerusalem, are we still somehow connected to the church? And Peter says, as you come to Jesus, as you gather in his name... Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And later on in that same chapter, that marvelous chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he'll talk about the fact that once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. All for the purpose, he says, of declaring the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the church becomes this gathering place of people, and men and women from all over a society and culture to sing and declare the praises of the God who redeemed them. Now the next one is one that you're probably thinking, well, Pastor Mike, you're really stretching it. But, clever fellow that I am, you'll see that I'm not. Special revelation. This is in verses 2 and 3, and I'll explain that in just a moment. The idea that the life was made manifest, and they proclaim it uh, to them, and they have, we have fellowship. What is special revelation? Well, it's special because it is how God reveals to us, through the Scripture, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the way of salvation, the way of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Theologians like to make a distinction between what they call special revelation and general revelation. General revelation is that we, we are aware of God's existence by what he has made. So you think Psalm 19, 
right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Uh, you think Romans, um, this just came to me this morning as I was going over my notes. We didn't make it on the slide. Romans 1, um, 20 talks about God, uh, his, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So general revelation will testify, nature will tell you that God exists. Somebody had to put all this here. But it won't lead you to a confession of faith in Christ. It won't lead you, it won't lead you to believe in the God who made these things. That's special revelation. That's the, the realm, if you will, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus talks about a, a manner of special revelation in John chapter 10. There in John chapter 10, he calls himself uh, the good shepherd. And he says uh, about those who will follow him, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Well, how do we follow him except that the Spirit opens our heart and our ears to, understand, to hear him and to, and to believe in him? The, probably the best example, biblically, is from Acts 16. Paul and, and his companions, they travel, and they, they, uh, they visit um, the city of Thyatira, and they are preaching the gospel by the riverside. And Luke tells us there's a woman there named Lydia, uh, who she was a, a businesswoman. She sold purple. And she's listening to Paul preach. And the scripture there says the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. That's special revelation. God opening the heart so that suddenly what was once dead words, dead letters on a dead page, now suddenly leap out of the page into our heart and our mind, and they open our understanding of who Jesus is. And this is what Paul means in Romans 1.16 when he talks about the gospel being the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. That's, that's special revelation. And John talks about that in terms of the word being made manifest, right? being revealed to us in the person of Christ. And then he talks about, he begins on the doctrine of the attributes of God. That's in verse 5, where he says, God is light. Light is an attribute of God. It does the same thing does John in 1 John 4.8, when he talks about, and he says, God is love. And again, uh, scholars and theologians like to classify God's attributes in two categories. Right? There are communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. We should know about communicable attributes because we're dealing with communicable diseases while we're living in the age of COVID. Right? Something that's communicable, you communicate it. And so the communicable attributes of God are those attributes which we are allowed to practice and reflect. So you think of love and mercy and compassion and grace, kindness, gentleness. Think of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are uh, communicable attributes that we are allowed to participate in and demonstrate to the world. But then God has what are called incommunicable attributes. And these are attributes that belong to God and God alone. God is light. Right? God is eternal. God is triune. Um, he is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omnipresent. He is present everywhere. Uh, he is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. Uh, so John is introducing us into the fact that God is light. And if we're going to know how to walk in the light, we have to know the God who is light. Paul talks about God dwelling in unapproachable light. 
uh, as well. So it's, it's important to know that, important to see that. Also, the reason why I'm doing this is to begin to see how John, John knows his Bible. So these themes that he's drawing into this first chapter, he's not making them up. They are being drawn from the scriptures that he had in his possession, which would have been the Old Testament. And so he's, he's introducing these ideas, these themes, as a means of making his case that we need to follow Christ in Christ alone and in opposition to what his opponents have been saying. Because the next doctrine is really the key issue that John is dealing with in his congregation, and that is the doctrine of sin. You see in verse 6, 8, and 10, the issue is that his opponents were denying that, number one, they had any sin. Uh, they were denying that they had committed any sin and uh, that they didn't need to be forgiven for any sin. And <laughs> that's just not true. If we define sin as any failure to obey the moral law and act attitude or character, no one escapes this. I mean, you can, you can ask someone, you know, have you looked lustfully at a woman? And they would say, no, I haven't done that. I haven't, I haven't committed that sin, so therefore I'm sinless. And you think, when you get on the highway and you pull out into traffic and the sign says 55, well, everyone's going, yeah, yeah, okay. There you are, right? Or is it, have you always told the truth? Someone asks you, how are you doing? I'm fine. Or as when, when I do uh, marriage counseling, I always, you know, always put out the fact that, you know, <laughs> and I had to learn this as a husband, that when my wife, when I ask my wife how she's doing, she says, fine. <laughs> Press a little further, gentlemen, because it's not fine. So there is, there is a gap here, right, between what we say and what we do. And so John's opponents, however, did much more than deny that they had disobeyed and broken God's moral law. They were going so far as to say, we don't even have a sin nature in us. We're that perfect. We're that good. They were denying what has come to be known as original sin. And that original sin stems from Adam's initial disobedience way back in the Garden of Eden. It's something that Paul refers to in that marvelous chapter 5 of his letter to the Romans. Romans 5, Paul is talking about the first Adam, the Adam that lived in the Garden of Eden, and he's talking about the second Adam, who was Christ. And in comparing the two, he says that by one man's disobedience, the first Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so what he's saying there is that original sin is not Something that is, uh, let's say we're born sinless and then we commit that first sin and it's original sin. No, it's the fact that we're tainted with it from the start. Every individual, in a sense, has the, the stain of Adam's disobedience wired into us. It's what Paul talks, uh, talks about in Romans 3.23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. David, the classic example, Psalm 51 verse 5. Um, I was guilty of sin from birth. I was a rebel from the time my mother conceived me. That, that's the uh, New English uh, translation of that verse, which I really like because it, it just gets to the heart of the matter. The other thing, too, is when you deny that you're a, sin, when you a sinner, you deny that you have a sin nature, 
You're also short-circuiting and denying the role and primary ministry of the Holy Spirit that Jesus describes in John 16, 8. Uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8, Jesus says when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he'll prove the world wrong uh, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Right? There's a problem right there. Right? That's sin, not believing in Jesus. Concerning righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer. He's, he's fulfilling everything that God gave him to do. And concerning judgment because the ruler of uh, this world now stands condemned. So what John is wanting us to understand is that sin is not a moral construct. Right? Sin is not this idea that the oppressor class has foisted upon the oppressed in order to keep them in place. But it is a reality into which every man and woman is born into and has to be dealt with either through faith in Christ or you face the judgment of God on your own and you are, at that point, your own attorney. Which we all know, as the proverb says, he who has himself for a client has a fool for a client, right? You, we cannot represent ourselves before God adequately. We need someone to stand in our place. So sin is a serious thing. Uh, as R.C. Sproul says, it's an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. And that leads to the next thing that John talks about, the next doctrine he introduces, and that is the doctrine of sanctification. You see that in verse 7. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. This process of growing in our relationship with Christ. It's this sanctification is this once for all act of God, the Holy Spirit, whereby we undergo a change in status and character. So where once we were separate from God, that was our status before, right? We have a change in status. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. Once you were far off, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we change from being sinners to saints, from those walking in darkness to those walking in light. Paul does a marvelous job of this in Colossians. He talks about being translated or transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light of his glorious son. It's just a marvelous thing. Peter does the same thing. So you have a change in status, but you also have a change in character. You go from being a sinner to a saint. You go from one who's disobedient to one who is obedient. So that this... As the old hymn says, to see the, the, the law by grace fulfilled, right? And, and to see that God changes our hearts so that we go from being a, a slave to a child and that uh, duty becomes choice for us. So that the, in being in Christ, right, the Holy Spirit changes our heart so that with his help we live the kind of life that exalts and glorifies God, a life that practices what Jesus preaches so that we walk in the light as he is in the light. Probably the, the best example of this in the Old Testament is from, you probably have read it, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, where the Lord, speaking through the prophet, says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, talks about putting on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. 
And in writing to the Thessalonians, he says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And then 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, he says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I always talk about, I mean, I, when I think about sanctification, I, I personally I refer to it as the My Cousin Vinny principle. You remember the movie My Cousin Vinny, right? Cousin Vinny is a real estate attorney who is asked to defend his cousin who is being accused of murder down south. And he has shown up every day in court wearing, and Vinny, of course, is from, I think, Brooklyn. So he shows up wearing jeans, cowboy boots, and a black leather jacket over, I think, a black silk shirt open down to his navel with, like, gold chains. And the judge tells him he should wear a suit. You don't come dressed like that in court. And this goes on for a couple of days, and finally the judge looks at Vinny and says, I told you to wear a suit. And Vinny says, what? You were serious about that? God wants us to walk in holiness. And we at times go, oh, you were serious about that? He says, yes, that's why I've given you my Holy Spirit to help you. And John, in, in drawing the contrast, that's why his language is so strong in this. We, it's, we would be considered very impolite, if not rude, right? If you were in witnessing to someone or sharing with them and say, you know, do you, are you a sinner? And they say, no, well, you're a liar. Conversation doesn't go too far beyond that. But John is being very, very either or here. Either you're in the light or you're not. Either you're walking in truth or you're, or you're practicing the lie. Why? Is he so serious about that? Because holiness is a serious thing. And holiness stems from an understanding of Jesus as that atoning sacrifice for our sin. So he is, that, and that flows into the, the last of the, of the doctrines that John touches on in that first chapter, and he gets into it at the start of chapter 2, which is the doctrine of the atonement. And he talks specifically about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin, when he talks about the fact that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does that happen if not through the blood of Christ as the atoning sacrifice for sin? And the, the Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines atonement as God's work on sinners' behalf to reconcile them to himself. It's the divine activity that confronts and resolves the problem of human sin so that we may enjoy full fellowship with God both now and in the age to come. And thankfully, in his systematic theology, Wayne Grudem takes all of that and distills it into this pithy statement. Right? The atonement is the work of, that the work of Christ, uh, Sergei, the atonement is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Now, I have a lot more to say about that next week, and I'll explain to you why. We just spent, oh, roughly about 25 minutes talking about these various doctrines, doing do biblical theology, weaving in these particular themes so we see how they are introduced into a, a biblical letter, drawing from all of these different threads. Now, why do that? Because you're probably, you may be thinking, okay, 
How is knowing any of this <laughs> going to help me deal with COVID or find a job? How is it going to help me raise my kids, be a better husband or wife? How is any of this going to help me deal with my singleness, my loneliness, my fear, or my anxiety? How is any of this going to help me be a witness or be a better disciple? Isn't it just knowledge? I and mean, you know what Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Well, those are all good questions. And in all likelihood, I think they're the kinds of questions that there were people in John's congregation that they would have asked of him. Here's the best answer I can give in response to those kinds of questions. Very simply, we study things like this, and we do biblical theology, and we are commended to be biblical theologians as Christians, because the more we know what we believe and why we believe it, the more able we are to practice what Jesus preaches, the more we are willing to practice what Jesus preaches, and the more enthusiastic we are about sharing with others what Jesus uh, preaches as well. That the goal of doing biblical theology is to understand who God is and how he wants us to live, so that while we're looking for work, while we're trying to raise our kids, while we're trying to be better people, we can understand that that's exactly what God has equipped us to, to be and do through the work of his Son and the work of his Holy Spirit. That by studying the Incarnation, we learn that God wants us to know that in addition to Jesus being fully God and fully man, so that he could die for our sins and make that perfect atonement. He also wants us to know that Jesus, as Isaiah describes, it was indeed a man of sorrow and well acquainted with griefs. That uh, as the, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, because... As much as we, we like to think about Jesus as a human, there are, I think, more times we think about him as God. He is so other than we are. And yet the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession, he says. Why? Because we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with, with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So you grow impatient, you grow anxious, you grow weary, you grow burdened with the responsibilities that you have, short with the wife and kids, worried about a job, worried about the future. Jesus was tempted with those very same things. And so we are then encouraged to go to him in prayer because he knows that feeling. He knows how, how it tears at the soul to want something and to desire something and not to have it. But he also knows the joy and the freedom of yielding to God's will and saying, this is what I want, but nevertheless not my will but yours. So you study the Incarnation to see how Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, facing a decision that we in ourselves would be crushed by, and yet he yields to it. And so the more we know what we believe, the more we'll want to follow Jesus and do what he says. But then in also creating the church and in God giving us the church, he wants us to know that by creating the church, he has given us and he's given the world a community where we can, as Eugene Peterson says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. It is a rat race out there. It is a world in which we are going to be judged 
unavoidably by what our output is, by how we look, or how, who we know, or what our level of education is, or what is our level of income. But the church is the place where none of that matters. What matters in the church is that we are a group of people, each of whom is saved by grace through faith in Christ. That the church becomes a place where we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. A place where we, we can feel safe about being ourselves. A place where we can know the truth and see the truth and know how the truth can set us free and learn the freedom of that forgiveness. A place where the physically weary and the spiritually burdened can come to Jesus and learn of him and find rest for their souls as well as their bodies. A place where we can learn of him who is gentle and lowly. A place that we can put on the clothing of God's chosen ones. That of compassion and kindness, humility, meekness and patience. A place where we can practice and demonstrate those fruit of the Spirit. Where we learn to bear with one another. And I love how Paul says it, bear with one another. Forgiving one another, just as the Lord has forgiven us. A place where we learn over and over again and are reminded that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that we're all sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ. And God wants us to study his word. He wants us to be like the, like the Jews in Berea that are described in Acts 17. As they listen to Paul's preaching, Luke says, the Bereans received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So that's our, that's our goal, that's our dream for, for our congregation, is that, yes, it's good to, to listen to teaching from the pulpit, yes, it's good to listen to encouragement, exhortations from Pastor Eric and Pastor John and Pastor Paul and Pastor Justin, but also on your own to take responsibility to, to study the scriptures and to see if these things we're telling you are so. Because if we can, we can see that, if we can encourage you to do that, it just enables you then to share that with others and say, look, this is why we believe Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. This is why it's important to understand the nature of salvation and, and come to terms with that. God knows how much also we individually need to have his word be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. To trust in his word as the only true source of truth, wisdom, hope, faith, and good news that leads to good news or to life beyond this life. He wants us to, as Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, right, to be a workman approved who is not ashamed, right, rightly handling the, the word of God. He also wants us to know that sin is real. You know, that it, how sin just distorts and disfigures our view of the world, our view of ourselves, our view of others, and mostly how it distorts and disfigures our view of God. He wants us also to realize the pain that our sin causes others, and to see that that sin is covered by the blood of Christ, and God gives us a means whereby we can achieve reconciliation with those that we have offended, as well as be those that forgive those who have trespassed against us. This, um, this season of Lent, I'm doing something I've never done before, and uh, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier, but I, I decided that I was going to um, just take Psalm 51, because it's a penitent, penitential psalm, and just study that for 
for all of the, the 40 days of Lent. I would commend you to do something like that, just to sort of see. You see David looking at his sin there in Psalm 51, and he knows because of what uh, the Nathan the prophet has told him in 2 Samuel, that God has put away your sin. Um, but then there are consequences to David's sin that follow from that. The, the child dies, and then there's trouble within his own household, which is when you read Psalm 51, you get to the end, and he prays for Zion. He says, God, do good to Zion, fortify the walls of Jerusalem, because David sees that even though he's forgiven, his sin has consequences. And so I think that God wants us to see the seriousness of sin, but also then see in that the glory of salvation through faith in Christ and his sacrifice. And then lastly, um, well, he, he also knows that in pursuing that, uh, living, a, living a holy life is hard. Right? Um, and so he knows the temptations that exist out there. He knows the temptations that exist online. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit to help us practice what Jesus preaches. Um, the Spirit given to help us keep going when we want to quit. The Spirit who helps us get back into fellowship with God when we have sinned, as well as with one another. And then, of course, he gave us the cross. He gave us the substitutionary death of Christ. And next week, we'll, we'll dive further into this understanding of what's called the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And we'll unpack that, because that's really what's chalked into uh, those first two verses of First John chapter 2. Christ is our advocate and our propitiation. So you can be reading ahead and studying that. And I, like I realize, Emma, because I look at your faces, I put a lot on your plate and I put a lot on your heads. You know, it was like one of my favorite cartoons, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, where Calvin raises his hand and says, Miss Wormwood, can I leave? My brain is full. <laughs> So I know your brains are full, um, but I, I did that because I, I, that's really our, what our goal is for the CG, to take what's learned here, to take what's learned in your own study of the Word, and to bring that into those groups, and to say, here's what I'm learning, here's what I'm seeing. Is this right? Can I, do I need more understanding here? What's going on? So it's sort of just filling, filling you all up with this so that you can begin to digest it and apply it. Um, one of, the, one of my great joys is, is meeting people in the churches I've served who have done this their whole life long. And there's this, um, this fellow that I, I know in, uh, on Cape Cod, and uh, Don is, God bless him, I think he's 92 or 93 years old. And I, I was preaching through a series, I think it was on Colossians, and I happened to mention uh, John Piper's book, Future Grace. And um, a couple of weeks later, a couple of Sundays later, I'm you know, reading people after church, and Don comes up to me and says, hey, I, I got that book. And uh, I've been reading one chapter a day, because it's 31 chapters, and they're just long enough that I can read for my morning devotions. And I just, I just gave him a big hug. This is pre-COVID, so you can do that. But he's 93 years old. And I'm thinking... He's closer to the end than a lot of us, but he's still learning. He's still pursuing. He's still growing. I mean, he's going to see Jesus probably sooner than I will, but he's getting ready to see him. And I think that's really what uh, Thabiti Anuabile is getting at when he says 
Knowledge of God comes only from drinking deeply from the message of the Bible with all of its rich themes. And such knowledge of God belongs especially to those Christian church members who commit to becoming biblical theologians. May we all, with God's help, fulfill that commitment and so bring glory to him in Christ to our neighbor. As we ask, uh, let's, uh, you think about that, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, are very thankful for the, the word that you have given to us, for the help of your spirit in understanding it, for men, Lord God, and for women who desire and thirst to know more of you. May we be like the Bereans, O Lord God, who would examine the scriptures, and in that pursuit, Lord God, deepen and grow in our knowledge and understanding and application of your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.